0: This episode of the 21.5 show is brought to you by findapilot.com, the premier aviation employment marketplace where pilots can search for jobs and employers can search for pilots. Pilots head on over to findapilot.com to create your free account and profile today. And as a special offer to our listeners, findapilot.com is offering 21.5% off premium memberships. Just use coupon code 21FIVE. Findapilot.com has employers covered, too. Post a job for just $49 or search through the thousands of pilot profiles in their database for the perfect candidate. Findapilot.com, where jobs take flight.
1: Welcome to The One Five Show, a podcast for professional pilots by professional pilots. My name is Max, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Dylan.
0: We're professional pilots with experience in business aviation, the airlines, and flight instruction. Today, we have a very special episode, conversation with Jared, an aerial firefighter. Jared talks about the lifestyle of being an aerial firefighter tanker pilot, how he got into the business, and also provides some tips for people looking to get into the aerial firefighting industry. And we even got him to tell us a good story for our tales from the road.
1: But first, Dylan and I are going to talk about some aeronautical decision-making experience we've had to uh, just kind of get everyone thinking, maybe spur some conversation.
2: You're on 121.5, the emergency frequency.
1: Hey, guys. Welcome back. Dylan and I were having a conversation uh, the other day where we were discussing an incident that happened to me and... The decision I made along with the other uh, pilot, and it kind of goes back to the go or no-go decision thing we talked about in the last episode, I wasn't sure that I, I'm still not 100% sure I made the right decision. Yeah. It was one of those ones, after it was all over, it turned out to be the right decision, but was it the right decision at the time? I don't know. So we're going to kind of talk about it. You guys let us know what you think uh, via social media, email, message boards, everything else. And I think it'll spur some potentially interesting conversation. Yeah. Why don't
0: you set the scene?
1: So I took off out of Scottsdale in the Gulfstream. We're going to Hawaii. So we're full of gas, 100% full. We got a bunch of people on board, you know, the owners, family, the whole deal. It's a 91 trip. So we blast off out of Scottsdale. We're just climbing out. And one of the the principal actually comes up. He goes, hey, I smell a little bit of like a burning smell. And there was a teeny bit of smoke coming from above my seat. I go back there and look, it's coming right from where the light lights are in the headliner right above his seat there. And it was, it, it was fluorescent lighting, some older Gulfstream. So it has all these little transformers and they're kind of notorious for burning up. So as soon as he came to the front and said that I switched the galley power off. So all the lights go out, shuts all the power off to the in that airplane, shuts everything off to the cabin, to the back. So I run back there you can kind of smell it. There wasn't any real visible smoke or anything. And you could kind of smell right where it was coming from. And it was right where the lights are. And, and I was like, wow. And it, and it went away. Um,
0: and so. Could not duplicate.
1: Yeah. And so I, I went back and I said, hey, I talked to the pilot. I go, look, here's what I think it is. Who knows? It's fire. You know, we're, we're horrendously overweight. I guess our options are this. We can either... You mean
0: overweight to land. Overweight to land. Yeah.
1: And our options are either to return to Scottsdale where there wasn't great maintenance and parts and everything else. Or I said, well, another idea is we got to burn all this gas off. You know, we could either land overweight. We could burn off spin circles, land somewhere else in Phoenix. Or I said, the problem is appears to be taken care of for right now with everything off, I said, we could fly to LA, burn off the gas on the way, or at least a good portion of it flying low and land at our place at Van Nuys where we took the airplane routinely for maintenance all the time, big maintenance shop. They got parts all kinds. And I said, we could go there. We were basically overflying airports the whole way. So we're not very far from an airport. If something does happen, you know, we get gas, get it fixed and then or deactivated or whatever we need to do, and then continue our trip to Hawaii. So we talked about it for a bit. We we elected to do that, and I know everyone's going to say, "Oh, it's fire! You should just land right away." And blah blah blah. And it, I'll tell you what. At my new job, that's probably exactly what we would do. And it's but it, and a lot of you guys that haven't flown the owner around a lot, it's a different deal with them in the back. And so it does, even though it shouldn't, it does affect your decision making. I think right, Dylan.
0: Absolutely. It's definitely something that is in the back of your mind. It's a consideration.
1: You're answering again to the guy that's writing your check and his inconvenience. It becomes your problem where at the airlines, something like that happens. And I turn around and we land and call maintenance. And then I run out of duty to finish it. And they deadhead me home and I'm done. Like, you know, you just, you don't have accountability to the passengers like you do if you're flying for an owner. So anyway, so we, we ended up going to LA. We ended up holding it Palmdale with like the speed brakes out at 10,000 feet for an extra 20 or 30 minutes or something to burn off the remaining gas landed at max landing weight in Van Nuys taxied in. They pull the panel off. It was, it was the transformer. I don't think they had any there. So they basically just deactivated that segment of lights, deactivated some other inverter that powers it or whatever. Said, so, yep, no problem, happens all the time, you know, here you go, signed off the book, we gassed up when we went to Hawaii and went on our, our trip. So, what? like I was saying before, after we left LA and made our trip to Hawaii, yeah, it, it turned out to be the right decision, but at the time, when we were airborne and we had to decide whether to go back or, or continue, I don't know that that was necessarily the right decision at that time, and... Had I in that situation now, I, I may have decided differently. I think certainly in a different environment, in an in a airliner, flying for the airlines like I do now, I, I know with that decision, you just turn around and go land. And well, I think- then the passenger is someone else's problem.
0: Yeah. Well, I think really the, the root of the whole thing is whether or not to land overweight, right? Because if, if you weren't going to land overweight and you were going to sit up there and hold for two hours... Either way, you're going to be airborne, then I don't think flying to Van Nuys, uh, doesn't, what's the difference? Like if you're going to be flying in the air. That's
1: a good point. Unless you're holding over an airport, I suppose. You're closer to an emergency landing should you
0: the need arise. I suppose, yeah. Um, so I think that that's kind of the real decision really of this whole thing is if you had that kind of a scenario, and I'm guessing you were what? Twenty thousand pounds overweight I mean not it's it was a lot it was a significant amount right maybe twenty ten I don't know
1: yeah fifteen maybe fifteen thousand yeah. pounds ten but I mean on that it doesn't it's not really the uh, weight of the amount of pounds because yeah. it's all percentage wise right on a, on depending on how much fuel your airplane holds and how much it weighs, but we were you know it was significantly overweight
0: yeah, yeah, so I think that's the real root question is in that scenario you have smoke in the in the airplane, you think you have it identified. Do you land overweight or not? That's really the root question. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and I, to try and paint the picture of, you know, you you look back in the cabin and you can't see the guy in the second row. That's a serious smoke in the cabin, right? This was a wisp and a little bit of smell Mm -hmm. was really what we're talking about here. So.
0: Yeah. But, but I think at the end of the day, that's really the question is the overweight landing. And I think airplanes, you know, obviously I think all airplanes can, most transport category airplanes at least, can handle an overweight landing. No yeah. problem. It's usually just an inspection, and I'm sure there's some procedures for different aircraft. Remember, one of our buddies had a very similar situation to you where they took off for it was a long-range flight, out of Scottsdale at six oh four. Yeah, and they oh, yeah. and he held for like two or three hours. What was the problem though? I was thinking about that. I just remember I what the. I think problem it was, was maybe like anti-ice detectors or something, or like pro-peats or something. I don't know. So it was it was a malfunction where you clearly were not going to want to continue. But they held for like two or three hours. It was really funny because we watched them on FlightAware and we were just all sending text messages yeah. to each other.
1: Screenshots, Watch. being like, oh,
0: you yeah. can't wait to hear this story. Uh, but, I mean, that's the thing, too, where like when, when you decide to want to put it on the ground versus uh, doing the overweight landing versus keeping it in the air to burn off the fuel. Well, what, do you,
1: what would you do? What, what's your opinion in that situation? My specific one.
0: Yeah. In your specific scenario where you believe you have the source of the smoke identified and it's been deactivated, then yeah, maybe I would try and get in touch with some people on the ground, some resources like maintenance or Gulfstream to try and figure out exactly the ramifications of landing so heavy. You know, are there charts available? Do you have performance? Uh, what are the the brake consequences or the brake energy consequences? Um, obviously, that's going to Expose you to some other risks, uh, possibly a blown tire on landing. So, I, I think it's definitely two sides of the coin you got to look at. And at the end of the day, yeah, the holding for a couple of hours to burn off the fuel and get down might end up being the safer course of action. So, in your case, if you reach that determination, then continuing to Van Nuys with that plan of having the, uh, you know, alternate airports that you could touch down along the way i don't disagree with that necessarily i think
1: one of the big things too is that this airplane doesn't have brake temperature yeah indications that one didn't and so i think when you look at the landing energy you know Mm -hmm. the brake energy charts which of course are counting on you you know hammering the brakes to the ground floor and everything else you know worst case scenario but i think the other thing too is it required a if I remember right, I think it required like a removal of the brakes or something like yeah, landing just, at max gross, like removal and inspection. Like it was, it was going to be a, a big deal. It wasn't yeah. just a, you know, the mechanic walks around, signs it off on a visual inspection.
0: Yeah. So I, you know, but that's probably an interesting point for, for, especially for our business aviation pilot listeners is what is that inspection entail? What is, what kind of considerations do you have to give on, on the overweight landing versus staying aloft? Um, I don't know. It's a good first question for our continue abort segment that we're uh, that we're kind of feeling out. So we're curious to hear what our listeners think. What would you have done in that situation? What do you think we can learn from this? Um, what were maybe some other considerations that, that you would make if you're in that situation? Let us know.
1: And I think what's important is when you do let us know your opinion, let us know just the one sentence version of your background. Yeah. If you've ever flown private jets, if you've always been airline, if you've done both, because I really can't stress enough that that it it changes your perspective when it's, you're the guy in charge Mm -hmm. and you have your boss in the back And it. I don't think it should, but realistically speaking, it certainly does change how you make some decisions and what you do, whether you divert, whether you try and fly another approach, you know, when the weather's down, things like that i mean it, it changes all that stuff and it's it's hard to manage that relationship and i think a lot of guys fortunately the the guy that i had he didn't he put a lot of pressure on people but a lot of times when it was safety stuff and it, it was something i'm just telling him, like all right look we got to divert or we got to do this, he usually didn't give me much pushback um and i'm not sure if i don't know why i mean i i was pretty resolute in in my decision making with that stuff i'm like i didn't ask him i you know i was pretty firm i'm like look here's what we're doing mm-hmm. i'll we'll talk when we get on the ground but i don't know he they just kind of took whatever i said and went with it so i don't know well i'm sure we'll get some interesting comments yeah and uh, i certainly don't claim to be the smartest or the most experienced guy in the world and hopefully there's someone out there that has the uh the golden answer but
0: yeah, well, it's yeah, it's going to be interesting to hear. So shoot us an email. It's info at twenty one five podcast dot com, um, or hit us up on the socials. We are at twenty one five podcast, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find us on all of those. Let us know what you think on that. Coming up, we've got uh, our interview with our friend Jared the aerial firefighter this was a really cool interview max i learned a lot about a segment of the industry that i knew existed but i really had no idea how it worked so it was really interesting to me just to figure out how it all happens yeah i'm pretty sure that everybody the
1: majority of people out there also know exactly what an aerial tanker looks like and a little bit of what they do but this was pretty eye-opening and the the ins ins and outs of, of that business and what they really up against pretty cool. All right, coming up our
0: interview with Jared. Max, we have a special treat today. We've got our buddy Jared, our old friend Jared. Uh, that's right, our old friend Jared on the line. Jared is a pilot at an aerial firefighting company and he's also an old classmate of ours. As you know, we only interview people that flew for American Eagle or went to Embry-Riddle. Those are the <laughs> Very strict requirements we have for uh, guests uh, on the show. That's not true.
1: True. Daniel but. Chung did not go to Embry-Riddle. That's true.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was way too smart. He <laughs> way too smart. <laughs> so anyways, Jared, we wanted to talk to you a little bit today about what it is you do exactly, the aerial fire stuff. Also, you have been involved in a lot of the flight training aspects. You were a flight instructor at Embry-Riddle. I think you were in flight training management there. You were also the coach of the world champion golden eagles flight team oh,
2: that's right
1: I yeah forgot about i think that. they
0: won at least uh i don't know how many what is your winning percentage on like the championships?
2: winning percentage not very well
0: because there was a hundred years of them <laughs>
3: oh, that's true <laughs> so
0: hasn't the school won like 12 times
2: that would be 12 percent then <laughs> yeah.
0: oh, that's still pretty dang good so anyways welcome to the show jared appreciate your time today thanks dylan so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your path through aviation, how you ended up fighting fires?
2: Well, you know, it's kind of an odd story. I, I started like you guys at college there in Prescott and went through college, uh, graduated, kind of decided right around the senior year there that I, I had an opportunity to work for Atlantic Coast after doing an internship there out on the East Coast, you know, flying the CRJ and, and stuff out of Dulles and Chicago. And I had that opportunity, but I was like, you know... I don't want to do that for 40 years without flight instructing. So I wanted to do a flight instructor gig for a year. Kind of put off doing my CFI until the end of the senior year. Did that, started flight instructing right after I graduated in 2001. And we all know what happened that fall in September. So that kind of changed the uh, the lay of the land as far as aviation jobs and ended up flight instructing for a total of two years there. Uh, left for a year, went and flew some canceled bank checks and the old pharmaceuticals flying drugs and money back East all night, single pilot IFR ended
3: Man, it's up back right in, there.
2: Yeah, it was, it was, probably the best uh, instrument pilot anybody'd ever be is when you're doing that job uh, hand flying every night, flying a brook just down to minimums. It was a fun time. hated working midnights. Absolutely oh, hated working midnights. Yeah. And perhaps the only thing I hated more than working midnights was living out East. And so I ended up <laughs> back out in Arizona. Good choice. Went back to, Flight instructing at Riddle, and stayed there for oh, I don't know, almost ten years at that point, and uh, ended up in this job in the aerial firefighting thing. Basically, from people that I met at Riddle and keeping in touch with is kind of how I stayed involved and knew about this opportunity, and, and that's how it worked out to uh, end up at the company I'm now. And I've been there what'll be yeah five years, I think next week. So wow, yeah,
0: it's such a fascinating track because there, you, we just don't know anyone else who's gone that direction really, and it seems very, I don't know, random or difficult. I don't know. Like, you how have did you to wonder what it? the
1: percentage of people that flew a CRJ yeah. and then, and then went back to flight instructing by choice, which honestly you're smart because that is a big, I mean, I know that was a big piece of the puzzle for me too. Like we talked about this before I mean, you learn a lot teaching something, no yeah. matter what it is. Right.
2: You know, that's what, that's what kind of drew me to that right out of colleges i'm like hey i want to do this flight instructing thing once and then go to the airlines instead of being one of these guys that goes straight from college to airline retire 40 or you know now 65 would be 43 years later and having only ever done the airline thing i, I kind of yeah. didn't want to be that guy not that it, it's just not me i mean plenty of people do it and it's great that's just not my personality and so I kind of stuck it out there. And then, you know, after 9-11, it was kind of like, okay, what else is there? Oh, maybe I should go do this cargo thing. And it wasn't CRJ's, sorry, Max. It was, uh, that was the Atlantic Coast internship. The cargo stuff was in caravans and chieftains mostly. And, uh, you know, so I went and did that, which was great. It was a good experience. I had a blast. It was good flying. I just, it, it, the midnight thing and the living on the East Coast wasn't for me. Either of those really liked Prescott. So ended up back there. And I guess that shows since i lived there for another 10 more years.
0: Hard to leave. It's funny because the longer I'm I'm away from there, then when I go back, I'm like, yeah, this is a pretty good spot. Yeah, I wish I would have appreciated yeah. it a little bit more when I was there, but
2: it's, that's I think that has a lot to do with it. Everybody goes there to college, and it's like, ah, gotta I, I, I gotta get, gotta out, get out of, out of here, and you know. And I think five years ago I left there, and I, I think that was actually changing a little.
0: Oh, it's it's cool because it is a great place to to stay. But you chose a different path after ten years. Yeah. so how so you knew someone that was in the firefighting operation or like how did that work
1: By someone we know right
2: there was an instructor at riddle when i was a student that uh did a couple of check rides of mine and then as i went on through flight instructing and doing check rides uh this person worked for the firefighting company part-time in the summer back when this job in the firefighting industry really was seasonal he would work doing the fires on dc4s in the summer and then would come back and flight instruct and do check rides in the winter and so him and I got to hang out, and we knew each other, and we always kept in touch. And the company I worked for now had a, a situation where when they transitioned to these new airplanes, the, the jets that were flying, the, the Avros, using a simulator. And, well, it's not a very common airplane, so the Sims were all in Europe. And none of the European carriers needed a FAA qualification, so the Sims aren't, still aren't, the ones in Europe aren't uh, FAA qualified. So this friend of mine and the person that's now our DO came over and talked to the university and said, hey, is there anything we might be able to work out to where the university might be able to sponsor the simulator to try to get that going? Because it's an odd little thing in the regs, but you need to sponsor a simulator to get it FAA approved and you have to be a uh, 121, 135, 141, or 142 program. Nobody ever thought a 137 operator would have four-engine turbojet airplanes. 137 was written for the the guy with the Pawnee under the shade tree, you know, spraying fields. It wasn't written for somebody that's operating large transport category airplanes. So that provision for that SIM didn't pan out for that. And it didn't really pan out for the university, but kind of kept in touch with this person and ended up going over to visit the, uh, the company used to be based in Arizona. And after I went and visited the hangar and spent some time over there, I was like, all right, Hey, what's the scoop? Turned out they're uh, looking for somebody to fly a, a new, new to them. Um, corporate turboprop aircraft that they're buying as a uh, kind of a chase plane, support plane, taking mechanics, pilots, parts, whatever needed to go to anywhere in the field. And it was kind of early on in the, in the implementation of these Avro airplanes. So I started flying that airplane for a little over a year. What
1: kind of plane was it?
2: The turboprop? It was a Pilatus. Yeah. Great airplane. Loved it. Always said if I ever won a lotto, I'd buy one. And that's still the truth. Yeah. Uh, But everybody says good (laughs) airplane. Um, It's a honest 250 knots. Twenty five thousand
0: feet and fifty
2: gallons an hour. It was a good airplane.
0: So you so you started flying like support. So yeah. there's like a, a, a home base, and then you're like bringing parts and whatever to wherever the airplanes are.
2: Mm-hmm. And it was the first year we had the uh, the Avro airplanes out in the field, so there was a lot of a lot of learning there going on, and a lot of maintenance support, and you know bringing people back and forth, and, and supporting get the program going. Um, so it was kind of exciting. It was interesting to be in something new, and I was having a blast flying that airplane around, and little over a year in, I transitioned to the, uh, to the Avro and I've been
0: doing that pretty much since. So why the Avro? What is the advantage? <sighs> is it because it's high wing or what's the deal? Sure. Uh, it was a, 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 a very, um, affordable
2: solution to, to choose and, and you could do it, make it, you could make it a tanker cost effectively, I should say, you know, a lot of it has to go with cost, but you're right. The high wing design really kind of suited itself to the external tank that is mounted to the outside of the airplane. That, that would have been a lot harder to do on, on, say, lower wing-mounted airplane, like a 737 or something. Early on, that was kind of the tank they wanted to go with, so this airplane really fit to it. If you do any research and look into it, the, the external tank system is very similar in concept to one that the same company that I worked for, related company that's north of the border, did it for French on a Q400. Basically conforms to the airplane like a hot dog bun. Outside of the airplane and kind of wraps around the bottom, and that's it. And so the Q400 and the Avro have that high wing in common.
1: Hey, I have a question. So, what about the simulators that were for uh, like Air Wisconsin and didn't another regional like Masaba or Northwest? Some uh, that was a Northwest carrier fly those things.
2: Masaba flew them. We actually have. We have four Masaba airplanes right now. So where did their simulate Were they
1: they weren't going to Europe to train on those, those things? Those sims
2: all ended up in Europe. Oh, did, but
1: weren't they certified by the FA when they were here? Obviously,
2: but when they moved, nobody kept that certification up. I see. Okay. Yeah. So now the company I work for has a sim that's been installed. It's in it's in Canada with our sister company there. And it's in the process of being FAA certified at the moment. So that's exciting because that'll be good for us. It'll be good for the company. No more going to Europe, having to, to do all the logistics, get to Europe and do all that. And then our recurrent types and everything can be done actually in the simulator instead of, we're still doing a lot of that in the airplane. I mean, I took my type ride in the airplane.
0: You had to fly the dreaded three engine approach in the airplane. <laughs> the,
2: the three engine one's not bad, but the two engine one gets gets entertaining, but uh, I, I joked and I turned final on a two-inch approach and I, I joked to the examiner. I said, hey, it might be high, but at least I'm fast, you know, so which is pretty much how every one of those I've ever done has turned out. So uh, it's good though. It's kind of a fun maneuver. The fortunate thing for us is when we're doing those training flights and, and really anytime we're coming back to the airport, we're light. I don't think there's, there's definitely not a civilian operation that generally takes off as heavy as we do and then lands nearly immediately as light as we do. You yeah, know? right. <laughs> I mean almost every take almost every takeoff we do is near max takeoff weight or at least max for the given conditions. And um and then we land twenty seven thousand pounds lighter. So almost God. what twenty eight, twenty
0: nine percent of the the weight. So So let's get back to you were talking about the tanks. So I guess in my mind, I I was thinking that 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 was something inside the fuselage, but you don't store any of your cargo inside the fuselage at all? Our airplane
2: is all external. There are vendors that have done a variety of systems, and they all have their advantages. That was just the design that my company went with. Uh, It was what they were familiar with, and and it's worked out well. It's it's an effective uh, solution, gets good comments from the people we work with on the ground, and then the folks in the government and each system goes through a qualification process before they're authorized and before they're contracted. So they have to pass quality tests. And essentially what they do is they'll fly the airplane and do multiple drops around a grid of about 10,000 plastic cups. And then they go out and weigh all the plastic cups to see how the distribution pattern of that retardant
0: is. It's like beer pong with a uh, fire retardant. <laughs> kind <of>. Sure, Sure. <laughs> Wow. That's crazy.
2: So that's, that's part of the qualification that the airplanes go through. So yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. The, the engineering and uh, the quality assurance and stuff that goes into that is, it's impressive to see
0: and unique. So how many, is it, do you guys measure the retardant in gallons or how do you guys calculate that?
2: Generally gallons, it's a 3,000 gallon capacity airplane. So we carry 3,000 gallons of fire retardant. Uh, that's 27,000 pounds. So it's just a little heavier than water.
1: Tell us about the job. You know, I, there's so many questions. How do you know where to go? Where do you stay? What do you do? Who tells you where to draw? You know, all that
2: stuff. Each company's a little different. How, they, how they're going to operate, how they're going to staff, how they're going to schedule their crews, how they're going to handle overnights and, and stuff like that. Each one's a, a little different and a little in the same. My company, and I think uh, we've done a pretty good job with this, and uh, we've had a few people, you know, move over from other companies simply because of the schedule. It's generally a two weeks on, two weeks off is what we loosely call it. It's essentially travel. You work six days, you have a day off wherever the airplane is, then you work six days and then you travel home and then you've got 13 days off. So it's loosely two weeks on two weeks off.
0: And so you can be really anywhere in the country as far, they just airline you to wherever the plane happens to be, right?
2: We have pilots that live uh, anywhere in the country on, on our side in the, in the jet got a couple of folks that live in Florida on the East coast. I know we also fly the scoopers, the uh, CL-415 Super Scooper. Oh, that's cool.
1: For those of you, that's a that's a, a flying boat that lands on the water and scoops the water up. It's a turbo, high-wing turboprop, yellow.
2: And, and, you know, scuba divers and all that, it grabs them all.
3: <laughs> Fish, whatever, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, no. Um, but, you know, we've got guys that live in Alaska, Maine, a couple of Canadians. So, I mean, all over North America, basically, um, we've got guys that live in then. You just airline to where the airplane is, go to work for those two weeks and then airline home. What do you wear while you're flying? Well, you know, uh, one of the, one of the great parts about the job is that I get to show up every morning wearing shorts, t-shirt and flip flops if I want. While we're sitting on standby, there's, there's really not much of that. You know, you don't want to look like a hobo, yeah. but, uh, I mean, pretty much shorts, t-shirt, flip flops, or tennis shoes, baseball cap, the flying, when we're doing the contract flying, you have to wear a Nomex flight suit and, uh, Boots, that sounds nice but, and cool. Uh, you know, it's not. Um, <laughs> but uh, fortunately, our airplane's got, now uh, there's a few mods that our mechanics did, and there's really good uh, ventilation in the cockpit, so it actually keeps it uh, reasonable temperature for uh, doing the turns and everything else. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's not bad, you know, to go out on a dispatch, and when you just walk up to the airplane fire up the APU, you get things going, and then throw a Nomex suit on and hop in the seat. So
0: I've seen the uh, Chicks dig Nomex bumper yeah, sticker. Chicks love Nomex. Yeah. I haven't seen that no. one. And I don't, okay. I
2: don't know that Maybe it's especially if you've flown
1: eight legs in it.
2: Yeah. Over <laughs> yeah, a fire. yeah I was going to say, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure I got back from this rotation and my Nomex was standing up on its own. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So if there is a active fire and you're going, and it's a big fire, you're going to probably fly all six of those days, take a day off and then continue flying. Is, are you flying like pretty much every day you're on duty?
3: It, it,
2: Dylan, it's so hard. You know, just this, I just finished a two week rotation on Thursday and the first six days we flew 34 hours, which is more than I've flown in the four years of flying that airplane Wow! in six days. I mean, we were flying, it was busy. And then the second six days we flew four hours.
1: <laughs> Cause you did such a good job on the first four six days.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Overachiever. Yeah. I don't know about that. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people involved, you know, I mean we do the flying and, and frankly, I think we have the, the fun job. I mean, it's the real guys doing the work of the guys on the ground with shovels and flaskies and the guys driving dozers and stuff that are out down there in the, in the hot and in the heat and the, fl- you know, near the flames. And those guys are, are the ones that are doing the, the real job. It's just, it's nice to be able to help those guys out. Yeah. So, I mean, but to go, the activity just goes like that. And this year is by far been the, the, slowest year I've had since being in the in the job which is a good thing just cuz we had that wet winter right well yeah and it hasn't dried out i mean there's wet wet winters are good but the other thing is that creates fuel yeah it grows a bunch right and then it dries out and that that just provides fuel um but it's this has been the slowest year and that's and that that's a good thing for generally everybody you don't like to see the uh the disastrous fires like we've seen in california the last last couple of years
0: so how does it work as far as when they decide they're going to bring you guys in? Is it typically like a size or is it the amount of control they have over the fire? Or how, when do they decide, okay, we need to bring these assets over and you know how that works?
2: You know, no, uh, know a little, but not to the, the craziest uh, detail, but it's a lot of factors. Dylan it can be the size. It can be where it's at. For example, if a fire is burning in rough terrain, that a ground crew is going to get a really hard time get into or it's gonna take them some time getting there or they might not be able to get in there with the right equipment or whatever. You can go down, you can put a line of retardant and, and try to just buy the guys on the ground some time. So I mean it's called a retardant. It doesn't put the fire out, but it basically limits its growth or slows its uh progression. So you're really just putting it to buy the guys time on the ground so they can get a, a dozer or a
0: shovel or cut some cut some line around it. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I imagine you guys work pretty closely with the government, right. And other state and federal agencies to coordinate all this. So are they the ones that make the decision like, okay, we need to bring in this company to do this or how, how does that all work?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's ultimately driven by, by the government and it's an interagency effort through several government agencies. Um, most of the, the big, kind of land companies or land agencies like the Forest Service, BLM, some of the other ones that you don't necessarily think of National Park Service plays into it, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, all of those government agencies that are responsible for large amounts of land all kind of feed into one interagency effort. But the airplanes are contracted generally for an exclusive use period. So for example, our airplanes are exclusively available to the to the government to uh for six months say and on day one that airplane will leave the hangar and go out on contract to wherever the the forest service wants it and it may never make it back to the hangar until the end of the contract usually there's a maintenance swap or something you'll come back Mm -hmm. and and get some maintenance done but in theory it is the it's out there at the discretion of the uh, at the discretion of the government so in the 135 121 world you're you're Talking about operational control, that's that would be a term you could use, and that kind of falls on the government for us. So they're the ones that are gonna dictate where the airplane goes, where the airplane sits, what fire it goes to, and, and that sort. Have a dispatch center. Uh the thing that it's a little bit different than a traditional aviation dispatch center because it's more of a an emergency management dispatch center. So you're gonna talk to an aviation desk at that dispatch center, but that dispatch center is also responsible for engines uh, hand crews, uh, the hot shots, uh, mm. smoke jumpers, you know, all of that, uh, coordinated effort goes through them. Mm. But where we go is, is that directive of the government and they'll position us somewhere, you know, you might start the season just historically this year, we started our contract in the middle of March and we were down in Alamogordo, New Mexico for a while, because that's usually one of the first places that's going to kick off in the year is that Southwest down there, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. So yeah. So we started down there and there wasn't a whole lot of activity and then moved over to Arizona and flew a little bit up uh, just north of you guys there on the, what was that, that Woodbury fire? I think it was up by Canyon Lake.
0: Oh, yeah. I s- was, the, was the DC-10 up there too? Yeah,
2: I think we flew with the yeah. DC-10 a good bit on that one, yeah.
0: Okay, because so. I, was, I was flying on the arrival and I looked down and the DC-10 was just about to make the drop and we were dealing with a little bit of a systems malfunction on our airplane so we were a little <laughs> busy <laughs> and i was like oh I, this is so cool i wish i could be like paying more attention to this but it was like right down there oh there so other
1: cool. one up, uh, by bartlett lake
0: yeah was the there name? was one by bartlett lake yeah north of too. town yeah
1: creek kind of area
2: yeah there was one out there and then there was one further north by horseshoe reservoir okay no we flew that one was the woodbury one further south kind of went on for a little while it was uh, in and out of some wilderness area that they didn't necessarily want to use retardant in um, and kind of wanted to clean it out anyways, I guess. So it was kind of an on and off deal there. Um, oh,
1: that's kind of interesting too.
2: But uh, it makes, I mean, another thing is to manage it, just, you know, looking at what needs to happen to that forest. Right. Putting you out know, all the
1: fires isn't necessarily the best uh, way
2: to manage the forest, it, right? It, absolutely. There could be a, there could be a, a need for it to just, uh, just clean itself, you know? I mean, all that's right. what the fire is doing at some time at some points. So what do you do
1: in the off season? It's a very seasonal deal, right?
3: Snow ski? Does that <laughs> does that work? I mean, do you,
1: are you on a contract? Or are you salary year round? Or what's what's your deal?
2: You know, again, each company is different, and I can only speak for mine. And I, I think I know at least one of the other ones worked similar. Kind of had to have a graduated scale where you're on a base pay for the year, and then you are paid daily for every day that you you're out on a contract. Zapping oh, an airplane. You. So,
1: so you don't fly at all in the off season.
2: You don't have to. Now there are sometimes opportunities uh, to pick up some extra work here and there. And, and I took a good one last year and, and we can talk about that later if you want, but going down to Australia. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely want to talk about that. And so, you know, there's opportunities out there and there's opportunities to just, Kind of have some time off,
0: too. And a tap into the very lucrative Avro contract pilot market, I imagine. (laughs) Yes, yes. I've done one contract job, actually. Have you? So, yeah, one. I guess, yeah, Uh, the Rolodex probably isn't real thick, so... uh...
2: (laughs) But there is that, especially
0: if you're getting to me, you know? So walk us through a typical mission Like, I I don't, I I don't really understand a lot about it, but I know you're probably not the only aircraft in the air. Like there's, there's a fair amount of coordination. How does it work when they call you and say, okay, let's go fly. Walk us through that a little bit.
2: You know, it's a typical maze. I'm not sure that there is a typical one, but uh, they're all great. And that's, that's, I mean, they're all variable. And that's what makes the job entertaining and and kind of fun and challenging is that it keeps you on your feet. But generally what will happen is we're staffing an airplane, whether there's activity or not. Mm -hmm. So we're going to come on duty at some point in the morning. Generally, the base hours are nine to eighteen hundred, so it's a nine-hour nine-hour duty shift, and we can extend it up to fourteen if there's need, if there's activity. But it can be—it—it's literally you're sitting there in the middle of a you know afternoon safety nap, and a piece of paper comes and says, "Hey, here's the info of the fire," and you walk out to the airplane, fire up the APU, they start loading, it, and in fifteen minutes you're well on the taxi out and and heading out to the runway to take off. So, I mean, oh. it's a pretty quick, it goes just as, like I said, it went from flying a whole bunch to flying none. You're sitting there doing nothing, and then it's in, in the air and going. And, and I've never flown EMS. I've never flown air ambulance stuff, mm-hmm. but I imagine it's a, it's a little like that. You don't really know what the next thing coming in.
0: Okay. So you get information saying, here are the coordinates to the fire, or the drop, or like, how does that work? Basically, what you'd get is the
2: coordinates, and there's quite a bit of information on there, but the critical stuff for us is the coordinates, the frequencies, and who you're going to contact, what other airplanes are are assigned to that incident, and uh, any of the hazards that they've already identified would be on there. So, you know, some of the hazards could be that they've identified that there's several sets of power lines, or that there's, you know, a military training route going through the fire area, stuff like that, which all ends up getting coordinated over time, but in that initial response, those are things you really need to be heads up for about traffic Mm -hmm. and such like that. But you'll get that, and it'll be uh, generally, you know, throw the lat long in the box, program the radios so that you have the right contact information in it. Use a couple of different radios. Uh, Generally, the air-to-air in most of the places we go is going to be a a VHF frequency. In California, they use uh, FM radios, so... We have a, a, a dual dual band FM radio in the in the airplane that you can communicate with uh, other air assets, and then all the air to ground frequencies, if you need them, are going to be on the FM radio. Um, um, so generally, what's going to happen is we're going to get to a fire, and there's at least uh, what we refer to as an air attack, which is kind of a an on scene aviation supervisor, if you will, and and uh, that person um, is typically overhead the fire at some altitude twenty five hundred three thousand feet uh, in a an aero commander is a really common airplane the the turbine commander um, there's a few few king air platforms out there and a few others but they're overhead and and that person is typically a very experienced ground firefighter probably you know uh several years there maybe he was on a hotshot crew maybe a smoke jumper um, some of it's that's, that's very experienced in, in the, in the firefighting tactics. And at the very least, I would say 99% of our, our drops we show up with, with one, with an air attack over overhead. Okay. Depending on the scope of the incident uh, and how many aircraft are assigned to it, you'll end up with a lead airplane for the, the tankers. And that's what you see was generally a King air. Um, And I know we used to see him at Prescott Mm -hmm. Uh, and you'll see them on tv and stuff that there's usually a king Air lead airplane in front of it and uh they'll kind of end up taking control of the the tanker side of the the operation so when you show up on scene if there's a lead there you'll end up communicating with that lead and and coordinate with them they'll go through they can they can run the drop ahead of time uh get critical items such as like your drop heading and and any uh minimum altitudes that might come into play. Uh, they can scope out the exit and see what it looks like, and they can provide a lot of feedback in an efficient manner. So that's kind of how that works out. Like I said, that's depending on the scope of the size of the incident. Uh, sometimes you'll end up just communicating with the air attack overhead. They'll describe the, the drop target and the objectives and kind of go back and forth with that stuff and then plan your, your drop on your own doing like a high recon looking at the area, looking where the drop is, looking and seeing what the exit is, how you're going to get out of that drop, and then evaluating how you're going to get in. I mean, it makes more sense. If you can't get out, you don't even need to worry about getting in. Right. So kind of looking at the exit and the entrance to the drop, any hazards around, might even, you know, if it's your first time there, you can do a couple of dry runs and, and scope out the, uh, the altitudes of the ridges and and an idea and then before you actually do the the final low level and uh, fairly low speed low energy state so you want to make sure you've got everything kind of dialed in where you're doing that and in that
1: airplane is it just one drop
2: we can do multiple drops it generally you won't split it any more than I mean I've, I've had it done where we, I've, I've seen it once where we did quarter loads where so you come by and drop a quarter do another circuit around the pattern, drop a quarter. And that's all just going to be objective driven, what what you're trying to do on the ground and what you're trying to help those guys out with. The one I'm I'm thinking of was, it was the second drop I did from the left seat this year and just working on my transition training there. And it was just a really short spot and it was at the bottom of kind of a rock chute with some trees in it. And they were just tying from rock to rock and trying to keep the fire from backing down into the bottom of the canyon and kind of flanking around that rock scree to, to the other side. And so they just wanted to put a bunch of retardant at the bottom to essentially keep anything from backing down, like a log rolling down it or something like that, that would reignite at the bottom. Mm. So it was really only, I, I, I couldn't even tell you how long the line was. It wasn't very long at all. So we just did four drops right in the same spot and just kind of kept over oh, So see. there was a nice, nice
0: thick coverage there. Tell Um, tell us about the switch that you push to drop. Is it a really fancy handle, or is it lit up, or like just a nice? It's just a nice big button in a red cylinder on the yoke. So oh, it's right on the
2: yoke. Yep, just below the autopilot disconnect.
0: (laughs) And is it? um, So you got two guys flying, right, in the cockpit? Yeah. Is one guy going to do the drop while the other guy's flying, or how does that work?
2: Generally, the the way the forest service has it set up with the carting is the, is the captain's going to do the drop. Okay. So the captain's doing the drop. They're the ones pressing the button and they're focused outside in our company. We split those duties up that the non-flying pilot, the pilot in the right seats actually responsible for energy management. So uh, the person in the right seats running the thrust levers and maintaining the, the airspeed and then also monitoring the engine instrumentation and stuff inside and the systems inside. Well, uh, additionally, providing attention outside, but the pilot, the the captain, main focus is outside drop and communicating with the lead plane in the air attack. Interesting. You don't have auto throttles, I take it. Yeah, it's a co-pilot. <laughs> the, the airplane has auto throttles, and we use them, but uh, just not on the not on the drop. One of those, you know, I mean, you guys have all flown probably with auto throttles, and and they can be slow.
1: Yeah, I was to say not quick enough to react in that environment, probably. Plus, I don't do a great job of holding airspeed and turbulence, and I have feeling that. Uh...
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that's well, you know what, you know what else doesn't do a great job of holding speed and turbulence?
0: Me. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, every mission is different, but what is the. I guess the optimal height to make the drop is also going to change depending on your objective or is there typically like if everything's perfect you're trying to get to like 50 feet or something or
2: nah, it's uh, you know 150 180 it's generally 150 to 200 feet in our airplane and that's okay. that's specific to our airplane because that's how that tank is designed and calibrated so most of, most of them are going to be in that ballpark when you get into the the very large air changers like the dc-10 i don't remember off the top of my head but it's a little bit higher than that yeah so it might be three hundred feet, but yeah, one hundred and fifty to two hundred feet is a good ballpark.
0: And is it so. like one hundred and hundred knots or so, or what's one hundred and twenty-five is is what our air,
2: airplane in the tank is calibrated at? Geez, do you got flaps down and everything, huh? Yeah, it's you're you're essentially landing configuration without the gear down in our airplane, uh, and even at our max weight, uh, it might be just a couple of knots above one twenty-five. You know, maybe closer to one twenty-seven, one twenty.
0: Okay, so let's say you drop the full load, so you've how quickly can you can you dump twenty seven thousand pounds of retardant? Well, I think the
2: fastest it'll come out of there is if you do a, a emergency jettison of it. And that's like yeah, a
0: second and a half or something like that. Yeah. So, what do you guys have to do once you once you have that huge weight change and imagine CG changes and stuff? Is you like immediately have to make a reaction, or can you stay configured the same? Or the the
2: tank is it's it's a really well designed and well executed. Uh, as far as that's concerned. I mean it, it's hung right around the center of gravity. There's not a big CG shift when it happens. Um so y- you you get a a pitch up from the weight change obviously, but it, it's by no means dramatic. Um I mean it's it's a little bit of forward pressure to keep the nose down and that's it. I mean it's it's not crazy at all. It's nowhere near um what I probably imagined it to be at the first time, you know. Yeah, um, I would think. Yeah, it's, it's really not bad at all in this airplane. When I started doing this, my expectations were, you know, X, and you get into it and you're like, wow, this is this is why, you know. That was way different than what I expected, you know. And to just take one step back to where we we're talking about that air attack and the other airplanes and a lead plane, you know, in my head, you had this build up as this just beehive of airplanes and helicopters and you know all this activity going on, and it and it's. There's a lot of activity, and ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, it is—it's amazing at how well orchestrated and how just really, really organized it, it gets going. And and it's it's great. I mean, it's uh, there's established procedures for it, and everybody follows them. And you and and you work your way around the fire traffic area, and, and you get in and out, and, and it's efficient, it's effective, and it and it's it's pretty darn smooth. You know, so that was totally opposite. You know, I just really had no idea what to expect the first time you you go into that. And whereas the eye-opening thing to me was sometimes the bigger issue is getting to and from the fire, like in the airport. You know, if you start running a bunch of airplanes, just the other day we had, we were up in Idaho and we were running to a fire 22 miles east of Coeur d'Alene, out of Coeur d'Alene. And we had five large air tankers and four uh 802 air tractors you know so you got nine airplanes transitioning to and from this fire and to a non-towered airport and i mean it was just the traffic in between can sometimes be more of an issue than than what you would you know you would normally think that this oh it's on fire and it's crazy no that's actually really really solid but sometimes you end up just with that mismatched speed of a you know of a RJ doing 250 knots over, taking a, a 802 doing 150, you know? And huh. so in, in some of those cases, you're really happy for things like TCAS and ADS-B <laughs> and yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, now let's talk about that going back to the airport and you know, if you're, if you're doing quick turns, what does that look like? How long does that take? What What's that process like?
2: Well, I think the quickest turn I've seen from from basically block in to block out was eight minutes.
1: Well, so you're not getting gas either.
2: Just, no, no. You that's leave the motors just, running and you just... Well, we will leave, uh, depending on the base and depending on the, on the situation, we'll leave uh, two motors running. Well, so if they're loading the airplane from the right side, we'll shut down the motors on the right side and leave the two on the left side running. Um, we can do that. Uh, some... We'll do that a lot in California. Um, I, I think that that happens a lot there. Other places, it kind of
0: just depends. Um, so they kinda, can get the slurry in there pretty quick.
2: Yeah, they'll pump it at about 500, uh, 500 gallons a minute. That's kind of like a, a defined contract spec that the tank has to be able to accept 500 gallons a minute. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I think in that case, it was six minutes of pumping, two minutes to get the other two engines going, and
0: you're on your way. And did that, does that retardant come, like, are those tank trucks that, where does that come from? Like, how does that work?
2: There's a couple of different ways that's done. Um, there's there's a, uh, a, one is a powder mix that they bring on a flatbed truck, and it's these big pallets of powder. And they'll dump them into a tank of water, and they mix it up. And so they'll pre-make, depending on the base, they'll pre-make 25, 50, 100,000 gallons of this stuff and, and keep it there. And then you're pumping that into the airplane. The other is uh, a liquid concentrate. So, you know, that would come, like you said, on a tanker truck. And then it's just mixed with water on site
0: as it's going into the airplane. Is the guy that um, mixes all that the Kool-Aid guy? Is that what you call him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> and when you're actually um, making a pass, when you're about to do a drop, obviously you've got a lot of thermal stuff going on and turbulence, like, how much of the fire is a, affects that?
2: You know, it, the fires they'll make their own weather. You see that on the TV. Yeah, I mean, you've seen you've seen a lot of those pictures, and, and there's some extreme stuff there. Now, like I said, we're dealing with fire retardant, so you're not necessarily putting it on the fire. So the thing to remember is we're generally going to put it out in front of the fire to build a, a line that then the guys on the ground are going to come up and then reinforce. So you're not you're not really over the fire you know like you might picture we have and we don't do it often but you can haul water and our our scoopers obviously haul water and that's more going to be used more for a direct attack you know when you're going to mm-hmm. drop it exactly on the fire but even that's a little different you're you're not really getting into the the extreme heat and thermal that are coming off of the fire you're not getting into the the heavy smoke dealing with a little bit of drift smoke here or there that that happens but you're not getting into like the the heavy convective columns obviously more so than the heater convective turbulence like that uh is dealing with winds i mean generally that's where most of our turbulence is going to come from winds crossing the ridges uh and stuff like that just being low level and and oftentimes you know especially when you get into southern california and some of the santa Ana events you can you can get some pretty ridiculous uh winds so you're gonna get a lot of rotors around uh around around some of the ridge tops. So being aware of where the wind's coming from, where you are in relation to that ridge, and, and being able to pick up on some of that stuff is, is pretty critical. So
1: there's this video that we found online. Guy comes in, he does his drop, and then I guess I'll just describe for everybody it's listing, but obviously we'll have this link on our website and, that you guys can see. It's pretty remarkable. But the guy comes down, does a drop in a valley, and he's climbing out and you just see a bunch of dust fly up as he cross. Craw- I mean, it looks like he scrapes the the ridge, and I think it's just that he's really low. I don't know. Have you seen this video, Jared?
2: I have seen the video, uh, and I'd like to take this moment to thank the 67 friends of mine that have reached out and sent it to me. I, I appreciate that you guys found <laughs> me when you saw that. Uh, well, what's
1: the deal? Uh, can you explain that from a guy that actually knows? Like, What what happened?
2: You know, I I wasn't there. And I'm not much into armchair quarterbacking it. We've gotten some information you know has been distributed out to some of the vendors. There's a a report in the in the government's safety reporting system that I assume was from the crew that was was in the airplane and and I believe what they said happened is and this has happened and, and it doesn't happen to just up us. it happens in the military, it happens to everybody. I mean target fixation is a is a really critical thing that can happen to to anybody you know you, you want to do a good job, you want to make sure to hit what the objective is and you're, you're focused on that you might lose sight of another piece of critical information. Uh, I believe the safety report said he, he had descended unintentionally, you know, due to the target fixation, descended below an altitude he had been given for the, the minimum for that drop and cleared that Ridge as he saw in the video.
1: Wait, so did, did they actually contact the ground at all or, or they just got that close or kicked up the dust?
2: No, I I don't know Max. There was nothing in the safety report from that, but I I can't imagine that it actually contacted Man,
1: the ground. That's a close one. Yeah, I mean, it, well, like you said, I mean, I've always been a big one to say, listen, I, I don't know what happened, and it's really easy sitting here on the ground to always be critical of, of stuff you see or, or read about or whatever. And I just think the video is just is pretty remarkable. So check it out. Yeah. Like they in close, and you know, we we've all screwed up. So.
3: <laughs> you know,
2: I'll, know. I'll admit i'll admit to have seen seeing that video a few days before it seemed to go viral on the internet and uh i saw it later in the afternoon and yeah that that's something that sticks with you see something like that it's it sticks with you and well wow. i'm really happy that it ended the way it did
1: yeah i was gonna say you we could that could be a whole different video
2: but yeah it could have been a whole lot worse sure and i'm i'm happy for those guys uh obviously that they're with us and out flying um
0: and that target fixation to me just seems like it would be so tempting looking down and like, that's a lot that you have to manage right there, I imagine.
2: Oh, I'm trying to remember. There's an old video of a, I, I can't remember if it was an A6 or something like that in the Navy or some other Air Force airplane that, I mean, the guy coming in on a, on a, on a, some sort of bombing run and it pickles the bomb and the bomb hits and the airplane hits. It's a human factors thing that you need to be aware of. And- well, that's why
1: it sounds like it's a smart thing that your company does where the guy that's flying is also controlling the drop. Because if it were one guy flying, the other guy controlling the drop, what's everybody looking at target, right?
2: My experience is very limited to the way we do it. And it's worked well for us. And our guys seem to like it that way. And, um, but I mean, even, even then, you know, you can, you can still find yourself getting target fixated, but that's, that's where that two crew and that CRM and everything we've taught and we've uh, been taught and we've learned and, you know, speaking up and saying, Hey, we're coming up on that altitude. Oh, yeah, all right.
0: So getting back to the um, simulator, can do you practice any of this kind of stuff in the simulator or are you just doing mostly like your currency and kind of the typical?
2: The simulator is mostly the currency and brushing up an instrument system yeah, okay. just because it's, it's currently not set up for that. Now, there's actually an, a second sim that is being installed in, uh, in Canada there at our, our sister company that, well, not as like level D sophistication, it's set up to do the firefighting mission. Like it can be patched in with a couple other Sims around so that you can be talking to a, an air attack officer. There can be a guy in a lead airplane that you're following. There can be a couple of folks in 802s flying around. So you can kind of set up a virtual environment, which you can all that's train cool. in that technology is coming. That's, and that that's the kind of stuff I, I find interesting, you know, um, uh, seeing how you can, how you can do that to just kind of overall make people more proficient and and keep up that skill because like, like anything else, it's, it's perishable.
0: Yeah. That's gotta be a crazy, uh, I don't know if you guys call it IOE, but that initial training in the airplane <laughs> for those first, yeah. that's going to be crazy. It's a concept that
2: is kind of growing and, and we're implementing it more and more to where, you know, we'll start, uh, with a new first officer and they'll start in the jump seat, right. With maybe a more senior first officer in the right seat, experienced captain in the left seat. And they'll just kind of sit back and watch take a lot of that stuff in before they're actually sitting in the seat. So that's worked out pretty well. I did kind of less formally, but that's essentially what I did when I started. And, and, uh, I thought it was a really good good deal that way you get all of those. Whoa, this isn't what I expected kind of things out of the, out of the way. Well, you're not responsible for actually doing anything. Right. Right. We did get into this year. We went over to the sim in Dublin and, uh, it was my first trip to Ireland. I was one of the last crews that went to Zurich the year before. And the difference was is that we were using our own instructors when we went to Dublin. And so we did kind of meld some of that fire stuff, even though the sim didn't have the equipment in it. But some of those concepts of jettisoning a load of retardant on takeoff when you have an engine failure, work some of that stuff in. And then the instructor would just change the weight in the, in the, in the sim so that oh. it was now match the new weight. and So uh, kind of progressing and building that stuff in. So that's, that's fun.
0: Didn't that happen when we were in school yeah. in Prescott? Remember
1: they oh, yeah. a, a P3 or whatever, right? Dropped a load all over the car dealership? Oh, don't click yeah, I
2: don't remember what it was. I, it might have been... Uh, I don't remember. It was either a P2 or a PV4. yi can't remember. That was like 2002.
0: Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, if someone's listening to this and is interested in maybe kind of following this career path, like what advice would you give to somebody who's maybe just like doing their CFI now or just kind of getting their career going? How would you get into this type of operation?
2: I was listening, I was catching up on episodes today when I was driving and James from Raven, uh, says, what was the quote? You should network even when you don't need it so that it's there when you need it or something, right. something along those lines. Right. I mean, honestly, that's probably, it's the cliche of the aviation industry, you know, who, you know, and everything else. But I mean, everybody that I know that's gotten a job in this business since I've been in there has been because they knew somebody that was doing it and expressed an interest. So that's the first thing is get out there and network. Now it's an incredibly hard thing to do because I don't know if, you know, we're not at job fairs, you know, <laughs> right. we're not at, we're, we're not there. And uh, I was at Oshkosh a couple of weeks ago and it was kind of cool to see that the, the government was there, the forest service was there and they had, they had, you know, they've got their own pilots and stuff that they're hiring to do, you know, lead plane flying, um, flying smoke jumpers, doing, a variety of other things that there are required, um, but they also had stuff there for firefighting, so that was kind of interesting to see that at least they're there giving information out to people that might express an interest. Um, so you know, like I said, networking, even though that can be kind of difficult, there's a lot of uh, I, I consider myself pretty lucky to have gotten into this job as a first job in the firefighting industry. It's it's uh, usually more common that somebody's going to go do something else like flying an air attack airplane. Which is cool because, I mean, that's a great way to network. You're going to be hanging out at the same base with everybody else. You're going to be flying an airplane in which the forest official or the, the forest service employee, the firefighter is going to be sitting next to you. And, and you're going to be overhead this fire for four, five hours at a time building that knowledge and just listening, you know, and, and get an idea of what's going on that way. And, and then, uh, like I said, on top of the networking that you can do there. And that's a pretty, uh, there's generally jobs for those open each season. And they're generally just like a 135 minimum job. I think it's still twelve hundred hours. There's an operator up up the road from you guys in. I think it's in Sholo that that runs a fleet of commanders that does that. And uh, so those jobs are out there. There's 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 a lot of opportunities. You you kind of got to be able to you got to dig for it. So I I think it's getting more and more in the open. It it, it was always kind of seemed like this segment of the industry that was just there that nobody ever knew about. Right. So it's getting to be more and more in the open. So that's good. And, you're seeing a lot of people get into it in various different places and
0: so is you know, is the tinker pilot job kind of the as you talk about like the natural progression, is that kind of the top of the food chain as far as desirability? I don't,
2: I don't I don't know, Dylan. I mean, there's a lot of jobs out there in the industry, and I mean that still probably don't even know all of them, you know, or else you want to be like, Oh what oh, okay. Well that all right, that's a new one, you know. Um, but there's a lot of helicopter stuff out there too. I'd have to say that recently, I don't know. I, I'd say that it's definitely up there. There's some government jobs and there's obvious advantages to the government jobs. Like when you talk about uh, federal retirements and such and such like that. So, yeah, it's there. there's there's pros and cons to both. But it's 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 definitely a a, a good job and it's a, a coveted job. Um, there's a lot of people that, that would like to get into it, you know, especially in the industry. um
0: So it sounds like what we should do then is just sell your contact information for twenty dollars for any (laughs) listeners that uh, need. Just give me half. uh, Yeah, just that'll be it'll be a great little supplement there. All right, (laughs) now to wrap this up, anything else you want to talk about? Any other topics?
2: I I think there was. I I do have to challenge Max. Ooh. Because Max made a statement, I can't remember which episode it was in, but. Max, you said your part 91 gig was the closest thing to VFR grassroots flying. There was, and I- I'm not <laughs> sure I agree with that statement. <laughs> well, you might have,
1: you might have a point
2: there, you know, and, and I just say that joking around with Max because it's been a while since I've been able to give him a hard time, but, uh, you know, probably since he tried doing a, like, I think it was around the horn, uh, straight flush one night playing poker like Queen King Ace Deuce Three or some crap like that. <laughs> <No. right>. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I forgot about those days. Um,
2: you know, I, I said just to give you a hard time, Max, but it's also what makes the makes the job fun is that I mean we can be low level, 150 feet doing a, a, a drop over some mountain ridge and then pop up and be IFR at twenty two thousand feet if we have a long way to go back to a, a base. Or you might just say, okay, hey the weather's nice, we're gonna go VFR at seventeen five and be done, you know? So it's a lot of that, I mean, almost back to that style of VFR flight instructing thing where you're just kind of, okay, the weather's good, Notem's all right. Yeah,
1: well, it's, it's awesome, too. It's, what you do is something that you can't do on autopilot. And I think that that's kind of the definition of, you know, when you're really flying, is something that you can't do on the autopilot.
2: It's fun, I'll say, though. I mean, it, 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 you're absolutely right. And at the same point, when you're out there, and I think the most I've done in one day is 16 legs. You know, sixteen loads. When you're doing that, you're you're kinda okay having the autopilot going back and forth. Yeah, it's exhausting. <laughs> you know, uh just to just to be able to take a breath. Or uh you know, I i was kinda joking the other day as I was scarfing a sandwich they gave us for lunch and it was like I'm like, we're on a thirty two mile leg and I'm eating lunch, you know, in a in a jet.
0: The glamorous parts of the
2: job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean it's just like all right, hey thirty two miles I'm gonna scarf lunch real quick instead of you know, generally in a 121 world, probably 200 miles is a pretty short, list, right. you know, and so that that makes it kind of fun and 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 stuff. But you order uh, the
0: two inch sandwich from Subway,
2: yeah, right? Yeah, you eat half of it, half of it on the way That's out, right. half on Listen, the way back. Listen, dude, I cooked yeah.
1: my lunch today on the dashboard of the airplane.
2: Yeah, well, I I've I've done that. Yeah, <laughs> I've done that. um I used to. Somebody asked once, and I said, you know, I think the the only way you could ever, you I don't know that you can really compare it. To 121 flying, but I, I, I jokingly said, you take off from Laguardia, fly to JFK, do an ILS, go missed, and fly back to Laguardia. <laughs> that's pretty good you actually, <laughs> and and that's that's probably the closest you're ever going to get. And I mean, that's really what it is. You take off, do a short leg, set up like you're going to land, go around, and come back. And, and I mean, like I said, we flew 34 hours that first week, the last last rotation, and some of those were actually longer than normal dispatches. And I think we did like 48 flights in those 34 Gosh, hours.
1: Yeah, was, That's a hard 34 hours.
0: So <laughs> in the next contract, you need to negotiate to get paid by the landing then. <laughs> <was> a, like, <laughs> a sky, like
1: a, like a uh, skydive jumper drop pilot.
2: Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, 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 right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it can, there's definitely days that, and I think one day, three years ago, we did a three day stint where uh, it was like, I like think we did twelve, sixteen, and ten. So that's like thirty-eight legs in in three days. You know, and I mean, that's that's oh, it's a lot of flying. And uh, yeah. but you know, it, it's VFR. It's 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 you know that part of it can be kind of fun. But those eight minute turns, like I said, you know, you're sitting in San Bernardino in the heat doing an eight minute turn, and it's about it's about six and a half minutes of stuff you got to do checklists and setting everything up, and then you get a solid. 80 to 90 seconds to just kind of sit back and be like,
3: huh. all right, let's go do this again.
1: <laughs> that's cool. Well, it's always interesting to hear about, you know, the the uncommon jobs in aviation that I think a lot of pilots that listen to this know about it or know of it, but don't know anything about it. And then, so that's what I think it's cool to bring to light. I mean, us included, obviously I yeah, learned a lot. So,
0: so I fly up to Idaho a fair amount and pretty often I see one of your tankers on the ground is that one of your favorite places to hang out?
2: Yeah, you're going to Coeur aren't you? Yeah. We've got an airplane there right now, I think. And not to, like, trump a destination guide, but have you ever been to Wolf Lodge Steakhouse? In Coeur d'Alene? Yeah.
1: Damn, I might have been there, too.
2: It's it's out. It's east of town, about 20 miles. And it's out in, like, the middle of nowhere, and it's, like, mm-hmm. cabin-type place. It's like
1: a, and they, that's where they cook on the cherry wood, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's where I got
1: the cherrywood yeah. steaks from, dude.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a cab it's a cabin. It's in Harrison, Idaho, I think, actually. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, we okay. use that lake. Uh, our scooper guys use that lake for training for doing their practice water stuff. Oh, really? Picking up water, yeah. That mission versus our mission is is a lot different. You know, they're doing water, which is generally more of a direct attack. You know, yeah. and you're going to be a more direct application on the on the flames, and then than ours. And uh, their mission is much more it's similar to a helicopter in a sense that they'll go out to the fire and they're there for four hours going back and forth between a water source, you know, a lake and back. Whereas we take off, go five to 45 minutes to the fire drop where they're at. We're at the fire for somewhere between three and 10 minutes yeah, and then you're out and then it's an hour before you get back. So fire can be entirely different when you get back an hour later and now you don't know what happened because you're gone. Whereas guys, if they've got a water source close by, they're back and forth a lot and they're more involved with the folks on the ground and uh, stuff like that. Right. So it's, you kind of get two different experiences there in which that aspect of it would be really kind of worth doing just to get that. The other point I know that they have guys, you know, you will go out and do a four hour fuel cycle and you'll do 50 or 60 landing, you know, in the water 50 or 60 touching goes on a water. And you're like, and then you go back and get fuel, and then you go back and do it again, and you're like, man, you did 120 landings that in a day. (laughs) I mean, that's a lot. Well, so tell us about
1: the uh, Australia deal you did, and how did you get there, and why did you go there, and all that stuff?
2: Well, we went there. It was uh, Australia. It's obviously it's Southern Hemisphere. Seasons are opposite. So our winter is their summer. Each year, they've been having a more and more active uh, brush fire season down there. And this was kind of an odd trip for us. Uh, we generally haven't done it. Our, our sister organization north of, the, uh, north of the border has been doing it. But there was a need for a third airplane to cover a, a period in December last year. So we took an airplane down and, and, and worked it. And uh, it was a good trip. It was, it, was, it was really cool. Didn't fly as much down there as I had hoped, but it was kind of neat to, to get to be down there and, and uh, experience flying down uh, uh, in Australia for a little bit and just the, the ferry trip each way. Um was, uh, it was, it was fun because you guys flying Gulf Streams and stuff, probably, you know, get to go oceanic and stuff a lot. I, I haven't had that many chances to do that. In fact, that was the only time. And so it was kind of a cool trip. And especially in an airplane, that's it's not really designed to do that.
0: Yeah. Uh, Can you convert the, uh, the retardant tank to just yeah, uh, fuel. throw fuel? <laughs> uh, I'm sure you could, but
2: I, I think they found it was easier to just put ferry uh, bladder tanks in the, in the, in the fuselage. And right. so to the tuna, I think we had, uh, yeah, it was 2,500 extra gallons of, of fuel in the fuselage.
0: So. And wow. 250 knots. That, How long did it take you to get to Hawaii? Well,
2: 250. No, we're doing 0.59 Mach. What? Yeah, at 280. It's long-range cruising that airplane. Yeah. I want to say it was 6.17 or something to get to Hawaii from Oakland.
1: From where? From Oakland?
2: Yeah, from Oakland to Hawaii, 6.17. Did you have have to put HF radios in? You can put HF in it, yeah. And airplanes have SATCOM in them, so that's kind of nice. That's nice, yeah. Somebody was
0: talking about SATCOM earlier. That's it. And then where do you, so what do you do? Hawaii, then where?
2: We went Hawaii, um, Majuro in the Marshall Islands, Haniara and, uh, on Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands, and then straight to Sydney from there. Cool. Was the
1: flying any different than what you do in the U S you know, um, Uh
2: little things, you know, but most of it was, was pretty common because there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, US folks go down there for the, the summer. Oh, okay. Their summer.
1: Right. So that's the off season.
2: Yeah, and it's they're getting their systems and their their procedures and their stuff up to going and it's and it's developing well from all I could see and from all I read about it. And it's it was a cool place. I'd love to go back.
3: That's a cool experience though.
2: Stuff, but it was a good time. The trip the trip down and back was a lot of fun. Crossing the ocean at two eight oh and point five nine and I think one of the other vendors and a buddy of mine was flying a Herc down there C one thirty, And, uh, I, I mean, I honestly think they were doing about the same speed. We were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: that's pretty <laughs> you
2: funny. Know? I mean, they, and they've got a lot longer legs, so they were doing a different uh, route, but yeah, um, that was a good trip. So it
1: was
0: fun. That's good. All right. We always like to end every episode with a story. I'm sure you've got a million of them. Can you think of any,
2: there was this funny story. I was sitting on the ground in, uh, in, uh, Redding, California. And I was, it was, it was warm as a hundred or whatever. And I was just, I had the, Zero G chair set up under the wing in the shade, and I was kind of crashed out, uh, reading something or whatever. And the captain I was flying with, he's a great guy, and uh, he was doing laps around the ramp on his longboard and uh, got a big beard, long hair, and uh, and uh, wears Birkenstocks, you know. And, uh, <laughs> um, so he's going around the, the ramp a little bit on his longboard. And these two guys walk up to me, and um, it was the Sky West crew from the terminal down there, down the street there, and they'd been delayed. and. I think their outbound flight was canceled or whatever. And they had like a four hour sit. So they decided to walk down. I was just chatting with them. And Like, I'm like, you want to see the airplane or anything? And they're like, yeah, we're just curious what's going on. So I'm talking to him for a few minutes. And the, the FO asked, he's like, well, so what's your role in the in the operation here? I was like, oh, I'm like, it's safe here, you know, helping the captain, keeping the captain on a trail line pointed to, the captain of flying with, you know, skateboard around the ramp and the glance that those guys gave <laughs> towards him. And then me standing there in flip flop shorts and a t-shirt when they realized we were the flight crew was just, I mean, the look on their face was priceless. I was just, <laughs> I, I, I was just chuckling to myself about that one. So that was pretty funny. And, funny. Uh, yeah. I was a like, real yeah,
0: ambassador uh, for the industry. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, good for you. Um, that's the that's that's one nice thing is the the uniform for sure
0: so when you guys are hanging out on standby you're just like you have like a hammock you set up between the two engines do you just hang them
2: (laughs) no i mean there's different facilities you know each of these bases will have some varying level of you know crew rest place and some of them are, are great and some of them are small and and stuff and you know if you get somewhere where there was a busy fire and now there's a bunch of people hanging out not doing anything there's usually not a lot of room so, you know, some people go resort to sitting in the rental car with the air conditioning on, throw a lawn chair under the wing, sitting out in the shade, you know. Um, my personal favorite is uh, where I just finished up the last rotations in Bend, Redmond, Oregon, and there's this grove of trees by the base still on the airport property and everything right there. And so you can throw a hammock up in the trees and just kind of crash out in the shade for a while. Or just actually last couple of days, the our mechanic crew and and – and, uh, and I was in on a little bit of it, but kind of started a uh, extreme round of bocce ball. So that was, that, was, that was kind of fun. You know, it kind of went around some very uh, unique uh, features around the airport there oh, in the grass to the taxi and the rocks light. and stuff. Yeah, well, you <laughs> can't quite do that. but yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the standby time uh, can get long, you know, especially if uh, you're sitting out for two weeks and there's no activity. And I've had it where you go out for two weeks and you're sitting not flying at all. Uh, that gets long. You just got to have a hobby. You come up with something to do. Um, makes you
1: want to light a I, fire, doesn't it? No,
2: <laughs> no, not necessarily. Um, I take into doing some, some web stuff, you know, web development, just trying to learn some of those skills just in case I ever need them. And, uh, I figured that's better than browsing Craigslist and eBay and spending a whole bunch of money on Amazon and stuff like that where you're sitting there not doing anything. So
0: before we let you go, I'll give you uh 30 seconds to, uh, rant about the Chicago Cubs.
2: She's, oh gosh. I mean, you know what actually drives me the most nuts is everybody blames this on the bullpen. And just before this bullpen gave up like four runs or what, I don't know what it was. It wasn't quite that bad, but they had a huge lead and they gave up a few runs. But it, everybody blames them on the bullpen and the bullpen drives me nuts. But this, the offense is incredibly inconsistent and you can't win games if you only put up two runs when you're on the road. So it drives me that shit crazy. <laughs>
0: All right, Jared. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We'll put your uh, LinkedIn profile in the show notes for this episode. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you, if they have any more questions or any other listeners want to take the opportunity to send you that same video, maybe. (laughs) From a different angle. Yeah, from a different, on a different (laughs) platform. It'll be great. (laughs) So, uh, well, we really enjoyed it, Jared. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: All right, man. Thanks,
2: Jared. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, Max. See you.
1: See you. Yeah,
0: hard. Okay, that's going to do it for another episode of the One Five show. Thanks for tuning in. Just a quick aside, I did throw the names of a few of the aerial firefighting operations in the show notes. So if you're interested in networking with some of those companies, check that out. Thanks to Jared for coming on and explaining the aerial firefighting world to us. And a special thanks to John at findapilot.com for extending that special membership discount to our listeners, for 21.5% off a membership, enter coupon code 21FIVE at findapilot.com. And I really want to give a extra special thanks to all of our listeners. You know, Max, we just cracked the 5,000 download mark
1: yeah, we, this week. I don't know that we ever really thought we'd get there, but thanks, no. guys. We really appreciate the support. Anything you guys can do to help rate, review, subscribe, Leave us comments on our social media sites. All that stuff is certainly greatly appreciated.
0: Yeah, we don't have a good review to read today because no one has left a good review. So wah, wah, wah. somebody step it up. Leave <laughs> us a review on iTunes. doesn't have to be positive. We could call my mom. And show yeah, that. I know. We might have to enlist a little family member help here to really shot in the arm. Oh, pathetic. That's, right. that's all right. All right. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. And remember... Flexibility.
1: Is the key to air power and yoga. <laughs> I never get old <laughs> <Look> for it. <laughs>